Good morning, and welcome to episode 620 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from BaseballProspectus.com, brought to you by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh of Grantland. Hi, Ben. Hello. Later in the show, Sahadev will be talking to Dan Hayes of CSN Chicago, and uh, right now we have Tim Marchman, who wrote the essay about the White Sox for the annual this year, and is the editor-in-chief of Deadspin. Hi, Tim. Hey, what's up, guys? Congratulations on your job. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's pretty fun so far. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> awesome. Uh, all right, great. White Sox. Um, so, uh, so your essay sort of started with kind of a recap of, of what the White Sox have been for the last many decades. And uh, what they've been is kind of an ordinary team. They don't have a distinguishing uh, feature. And in, in most cases, they haven't even really had a distinguishing player besides kind of, uh, I don't know, lucking into, but, you know, having Frank Thomas land in their organization, they've never really been the team that went after the great player. They always went after the uh, the adequate player or the good player uh, when they're going well. And um, and you sort of link that loosely to, well, you link that to Jerry Reinsdorf. And, and I just wonder, is there a, a rosebud in his story that explains uh, why that's his preference? If you wanted to trace it all the way back, I'm not sure there is exactly, but if you look back at the history of how he ran the organization, he would bring in Carlton Fisk at the time he brought him in was, uh, at the time he came into the White Sox was a big, um, you know, very big free agent signed, I think a 10 year deal at the time. And that kind of pattern carried through a little bit more where the management you saw of basketball at a Ryan store would carry over a little bit into baseball. He was always a guy who seemed to really have um, a an eye for not necessarily the great player, but the big star. So you'd see him bringing in a guy like Bo Jackson or something like that. And that in some ways still carries through to the present day, like when they brought in Ken Griffey Jr. or Manny Ramirez. He's a guy who understands the value of making a splash. But as far as signing big contracts with a premium talent, I think probably Albert Bell. Um is kind of the definitive player in that regard because he had, I, off the top of my head, I think it was the highest per, uh, the highest average annual value in American League history at that point. I might be wrong, but it was, if, if it wasn't that big, it was, it was right up there. And he had kind of a mediocre first season, mediocre first half of the second season, and then he went absolutely nuts, um, and opted out of his contract. And, from that point on, you didn't really see the White Sox ever go after anybody big. And they were even hesitant about um, big deals with their own guys. And Frank Thomas as well was a guy who signed a big contract and then it became, you know, there was a, you know, there, there was a lot of conflict between him and the organization and, and he started to see them shy away from that sort of thing a little bit more. So there could be another obvious one I'm forgetting, but I think Bell is kind of the, the guy you'd look at as, as to why the, White Sox have been the way they've been over the last, say, 20 years, 20-ish years. So was he, uh, was, was I, I, I don't remember what it was like back then, was Reinsdorf super pissed that Bell opted out right after that kind of uh, MVP caliber season? Yeah, by all accounts. Um, he, was, he was mad, as he would be. And uh, he's a guy who, one of, the, one of the really nice, cool things about the White Sox is that they're, like, on every level of the organization they're really loyal and and 
that's had some really good good effects. There's lots of continuity, and they they treat people well. Reinsdorf is one of the guys who stuck up for um, for organizational employees when there's some talk about stripping their pensions, for instance. I mean, he's he's a guy who um, you know like thinks of himself as kind of a magnanimous take care of people type guy. Um, but he's very much the kind of guy who would who would look at Bell having had that crummy first season and then opting out and saying, you know, this is a modern ball player, no loyalty. I had to pay him when he wasn't hitting anything, and then the second he sees a chance to make more money, you know, he goes and grabs it. Um, you know, he's not he's not as much of a cartoon villain as I think he's often taken as because of his his role in the in the strike and his, his general attitude towards labor, but. He does have this really um, paternalistic aspect to his character that would come through in something like that. So Bell that season had a 172 OPS plus, and the White Sox had not had anybody have uh, a season approaching that uh, until this year when Jose Abreu had a 169 OPS plus, highest since Bell. And uh, in your essay, you note that Abreu got the largest deal in White Sox history, which kind of blew my mind because it's it's only, what, 60... Sixty-eight million dollars, which is fairly modest these days, and and Abreu was not seen as any sort of a sure thing or anything like that at the time. It 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 would have um, I never would have guessed that in all these years they hadn't managed to give anybody uh, that much money in one swoop. Um, do you think that that was? I, I don't know. I'm asking you to speculate here on things that you maybe don't care to. But um, was this like sort of uh, the definitive moment that Rick Hahn? Uh, declared that he was making the decisions or do you think that that somehow suits Reinsdorf's uh, philosophy? Um, I, I wouldn't want to speculate on the kind of internal politics there um, because obviously a decision like that is going to have um, you know Han and Ken Williams is still very involved in baseball operations and ultimately that's something Reinsdorf is starting off on. So the precise extent to which it's um, each guy's move Ultimately, the three of them are the only people who probably really answer that. But functionally, yeah, I think it. it whether it was, um, you know, Han just laying his cards down and saying, "I'm in, I'm in charge here, or I'm not," or or um, him persuading the other two, or or Ken Williams having always wanted to do this all along, and and Ryan sort of softening in his old age. Whatever it was, functionally, it, I think that was definitely a sign that the White Sox are going to be. You know, a little more, a little more aggressive um, towards premium talent, which is, which is good. That's, that's exactly what they uh, they need to do, and and what they've needed to do for a long time. Um, you know, if you go back to the the deals that have approached that were uh, Paul Konerko, um after the 2005 season, and Mark Burley signed a 50 million dollar contract somewhere in there. So that that was retaining. Um, you know, those retaining known quantities for good reason in, in both cases. Um, but they hadn't gone out on the market and grabbed anything, done anything like this. So, yeah, I, I definitely think it's a clear, a clear change, a kind of clear announcement about what they're going to be doing. And there's also kind of a, a I think can get underrated sometimes, a secondary impact to that kind of signing. Um, a couple of years ago, I talked to Ned Coletti about signing 
Yasiel Puig. And he was saying, I know this is going to sound like, like crap, but, you know, it's true that due to the previous regime, they had been kind of out on uh, a lot of the big international signings. And when Dodger scouts would show up to, to workouts, like players wouldn't even want to work out for them because you could get injured in a workout, and they knew the Dodgers didn't have any money, and they weren't going to sign him. And then after they signed Puig, it was kind of an announcement, we're in this market, we're serious, um, you know, we want to work for, we want to work with people, we're signing serious talent. And that had, like, tangible abilities, uh, tangible impact on their ability to, to find players, talk to players, to see players working out, at peak effort, and yada, yada, yada. And it just, kind of smooth things for them. And so, you know, that's, that's one element of the Abreu signing that I think will be interesting over the next few years, especially given the past of, um, you know, having a lot of Cuban players and Cuba opening up so much uh, in the next stretch is, you know, does that market them out as a team that's willing to, you know, to go over the top for, for the better players who are going to be coming out of there? Uh, you know, my suspicion is it will, and that's really good. You mentioned in your essay that one of the virtues of, of White Sox fandom over the last several years has been that even though they were a losing team, they were not an embarrassingly losing team. They never really bottomed out to the extent that certain other teams did. And the other teams that have kind of taken a step forward along with the White Sox this winter, like the Cubs or the Astros, had this very clear, well-charted rebuilding plan that we could all see coming for years and project when they were going to make that transition from losers to winners. And the White Sox were not on that sort of plan, at least that we could perceive. Do you get the sense that they always planned for 2015 to be a big year for them? Or were they kind of caught in between and sort of operating uh, by the seat of their pants? Or do you think it's a surprise as surprising to them as it is to us that, that they did as much as they did this winter? No, I think I think that was the idea because they had done coming off the books and and Tenerco and so they knew they'd have some money coming up. Um, and I think maybe last winter when when they didn't do much, that was that was the idea. You know, we're not going to be, you know, we're not going to do anything so let's bite the bullet this year and and hold off was was kind of the the general sense I got. And they did well with it. Um, that's the sort of thing you certainly like to see uh, an, an organization that's tanking, whether it be for an extended period or, you know, a year or two, do is, is, is once the books are cleared and you have a, a little bit of a clean slate, a little bit of money to play with, is actually spend it. I mean, when you talk about, like, the Astros and the Cubs, and I think those are, I mean, obviously really well-run organizations with really smart people who, who really know what they're doing, that kind of, um, like, just rebooting the entire system is really attractive because it's so pure and it allows for, you know, history to be reset to, to year zero and, and we can kind of clean away the mistakes of the past. But when you look at what the, the White Sox did and how those teams are positioned for maybe the next couple of years, I think you can see that there's some, there's some real merit in, doing it that way and, and trying not to be totally embarrassing and then just go for it once you have a, a little bit of money opened up. I, I, not that they're going to turn it around the way the Tigers did or anything, but the team that always comes up for me in this connection is when the Tigers lost 119 games 
and then they, they signed Pudge Rodriguez and, and Maglio Ordonez over the next couple of years. And right thinking baseball fans like me were just saying, you know, oh yeah, you're going to sign these guys with, uh, you know, a catcher in his thirties and an injured outfielder who's aging out of his prime. That's a, that's a great idea, guys. But it actually was a pretty good idea. There's some real virtue in having decent ball players on your team that I think can actually get overlooked a little bit because there's so much appeal in that year, year zero mentality. Like, is Melky Cabrera the ideal outfielder to go and get? Is he like a long-term building block for the team? No, not, no to both, but he'll help them win this year. He doesn't cost a ridiculous amount of money and he's being compared, you know, they had a black hole in left last year, essentially. So he'll do some real good for them. And that's a good mentality to have, especially since you're, you're zigging a little bit where other teams are zagging because they think the general shift in the game has been to stay away from that kind of player. Um, so it might open up some opportunities for them if they're willing to not to go all in on, um, you know, slow lefty left fielders who are aging right out of their best years or anything, but to take a few chances with guys like that or, or with David Robertson, who's, you know, a closer. And that's just not fashionable these days to, to sink some decent money into an established closer, but he's, he's very good and fits another position where they had a real need. So he'll not only be effective, but as compared to last year, he's, you know, he's being compared to below replacement level talent. So he'll have a, you know, in these circumstances, he'll have about as much impact as a player like that could have, which is good. The other thing is that they managed to do all this in, um, uh, by signing everybody mostly, but they, uh, instead of doing a lot of trades like the Padres did, but they managed to do all this without, uh, really sacrificing much of their uh, of their farm system, uh, which is unusual for the White Sox. They were uh, the White Sox were as clearly um, associated with the bottom of the prospect rankings uh, as any team in you know the last ten years, and they've slowly started to move up there uh, right around the median in our latest organizational rankings. Um, and um, they, I think, this is like the fourth year in a row that they've edged upward uh, despite some promotions um and um carlos Rodon is in particular a very aggressive signing a uh, drafty was was the white sox uh, uh permanent spot at the bottom of the rankings uh, as you understood it more due to a philosophy about acquiring talent or was it more a philosophy about getting rid of talent in exchange for big league talent well i think the big thing there is how much of a hangover they had because the guy who was supposed to be scouting international talent for them was embezzling money and signing like 30 year old prospects, you know, um, for inflated deals and, and pocketing part of it. They, they had a real serious problem there and that sort of thing takes years to come back from. And you combine that with Ken Williams being a guy who, you know, obviously always been very willing to, to trade prospects out of the system it's just a real bad mix. So I think some of that is just the the after effects of their having had this guy working against their interests, um, kind of flushing out of the system. So that they're they're operating more like a normal team now. And some is just valuing um valuing prospects more and not getting rid of them. They're so they're 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 moving on up. It's interesting though because they're 
for a team that has always been as um, you know as terrible in prospect rankings as they are, they, they've they've come up with players through various avenues, um, either out of their system or from international signings, who've been very effective for them. Um, it's it's a weird little paradox in that they haven't really had much obvious young talent in the system, but they've been able to come up with players who are doing useful things for them, which is ultimately the aim of the farm system, even if you go about it in an ugly way. Does everybody in Chicago call him Ken instead of Kenny Williams? Is this like uh, calling soda pop? (laughs) It goes goes either way. But, um, you know, he's... He's been uh, he's he's been known as Ken for for some time. Although people call him Kenny too, I don't think it makes too much of a difference. Yeah, I've always uh, I've always called him Kenny, and now I actually I feel like if I'd been calling him Ken for the last four or five years, I'd actually hold him in higher regard. Yeah, you know that's part of why I, I had to like train myself into doing it because he was Kenny for so long, and you know the idea is he he I forget what exactly his title is, the president or vice president or whatever, but you know, he's, he's a big organizational higher up. He's been a, you know, he's been around the game forever and, and by gum, if he, if he doesn't want to be called Kenny any more than I want to be called Penny, um, then that's okay with me. So, uh, uh, one of the, uh, one of the essays in this year's book was about the Braves, uh, being too, uh, only looking at internal candidates anytime a job is open. Uh, the twins essay last year was sort of the same. It was about how fixed they were in their own culture and how they only hire within their organization. And, um, and the twins, I guess this, when they hired Paul Molitor to be manager, he was a twins guy. He was an internal twins guy, but he was seen as an alternative, even though he was part of the culture, he was different from it. He was a fresh voice in the culture. And I guess the White Sox sort of have the same thing. They've had this really steady personnel group for decades. Um, but Rick Hahn didn't really, it, it has always seemed different from it. Um, and so even though he's the internal candidate, uh, even though he was the groomed candidate, and that he doesn't actually bring a new face into the organization, it does seem like he is different. Is that kind of your perception? Is, is Hahn the key personnel change here? Oh yeah, he's he's definitely different. He's you know he's a he's a quant guy. He he went to Northwestern uh, for business school. Um, you know he has he has a background that would fit in any organization that's perceived as um, a little more forward thinking. And that's something that's kind of been interesting about seeing this is you're seeing a guy who's who's coming into a very you know coming into control in a very state organization, you know, with, with maybe a little more sophisticated or however you want to put an approach. Um, but he's a guy who's been working for them forever. You know, he, he's not coming in and upsetting the apple carts and firing all the scouts and getting rid of all the players and doing all that sort of thing. Um, it's, it's actually kind of a unique circumstance because you get the idea of, you know, maybe some, some fresher thinking without, um, totally disrupting the good parts of the organizational culture. It's, it's a little bit of a unique dynamic. But regardless of that, you know, it, it points, as I think is very much the case with the, the Twins and the Braves, to the problem, which is just that, you, need, you, you know, you absolutely need to have new people coming in um, because cross 
fertilization and pollination is, is how good ideas get spread around. And as much as you can cultivate continuity and, and loyalty and a certain way of doing things, people have good relationships with each other and being able to trust one another and all the things you get out of um, a real culture of promoting within, which are all things with real tangible value, you end up being, you know, you can end up being too, too inward looking, too inward focused and things just get a little, things just get a little stale. So it's, um, you know, it's something they're going to, it's something they're going to have to struggle with over the next few years, especially because the team is clearly poised to get a lot better, which is not necessarily the time you start looking around to, to hire new people or bring new people in. I wanted to ask you about Abreu because you mentioned in your essay that he was sort of a different guy in the second half, really just as good a guy, but but kind of different. He was, uh, you know, in the second half, he was a 350 hitter with a 435 on base percentage, and maybe some of that was a kind of fluky BABIP thing. He didn't hit for as much power, and I was thinking maybe pitchers were pitching around him, and I don't know, I just looked and... It seems like he saw more pitches in the strike zone in the second half of the season, maybe once it became clear that he wasn't going to chase everything. So how do you see him in his second full season? It it seems pretty clear that there's not going to be some second trip around the league adjustment that makes him helpless. But is he he Miguel Cabrera, essentially, the guy that you comped him to in your essay? Or is he more of a mix of, of his first and second half guys? Yeah, I think I think he's some I think he's somewhere in the middle and that's that's probably a cowardly thing to say. That's a that's a easy thing to say. Um but it's true. He I don't I don't think he is um I don't think he's quite the guy he said in the second half. He might be, but I I don't think he is. Um I don't mean this in any technical scouting sense, I just mean it in a you know, guy sitting in the stand sense. But his you know, swing seems a little long to be Cabrera and even a little bit slow. I mean, that was, that was the knock on him when he defected was that he had, you know, he supposedly had a slider speed bat, which he absolutely doesn't. But, um, you know, he's, he's a little bit, um, he's a little bit dead body. I think to, to, to hit at the upper end of his range. I think he was more at the upper end of the range in the second half of last, last year. But it's it's a little bit of a drop-off if, you, if you're asking me to predict. I mean, I don't think he'll, you know, I don't think he'll keep hitting like Pete Cabrera, but it's like a tick down from that. Maybe more like a good, you know, the kind of years Albert Pujols was having in his late prime. I think you can see a couple more of those out of him, and that's not that's not too bad at all. If, if I was looking it up, it would be like a, like a 150 OPS or something like that. Mere Albert Pujols seasons. That's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, near, you know, yeah, so I'm predicting, I'm predicting a come down to the level of, of you know, not Pujols at his absolute peak, but, you know, a, a tick past that. Um, which isn't too bad. He's, he's, he's an amazing hitter. And for all that you can, you kind of look at him, um, you know, you look at him and, you know, I'm, I'm throwing around these words like, like slow bat and, and like long swing and, and almost a little bit dead body, but, but there's something really weird about the way the ball comes off his bat. You can be sitting in, um, you know, you can be sitting in the right field stands. You have to be very aware of him not hitting you in the face of the ball. I mean, he, he has serious, um, 
opposite field power, and it's just it's it's a really weird ball that comes off his bat. The kind that just keeps they're not those big majestic arcing um, shots. They're they're line drives that just just seem to keep rising and then hit a level and, and keep screaming. He's just a really fun hitter to watch, and I have no idea what the secret of it is because it doesn't he doesn't quite look like he should be able to do that exactly but he does and he certainly was pounding the living hell out of the ball in cuba so hell for all i know maybe he'll improve this year and he had that year where he had like a 900 slugging average and the ball was juiced in cuba and lots of people were putting up numbers but nobody else on his team was putting up you know crazy um course field numbers or anything mm-hmm and you also mentioned in your essay that the White Sox have sort of stood out in the sense that they seem to have gotten greater contributions from their support staff. Kind of the people who blend into the background with most teams are major figures for the White Sox. So I'm wondering if you still believe in the Herm Schneider slash Don Cooper keeping pitchers healthy magic. I I looked at this uh, last year at some point because the Pirates had the fewest injuries last year and if you look at the the history of teams that have had the fewest injuries in any given year, it's usually, you know, they bounce around from year to year. There's not a whole lot of consistency, except for the White Sox, who seem to be able to prevent pitcher injuries for about a decade. And at the time that I looked, the White Sox had actually been in the middle of the pack, something like 17th most pitcher games lost to injury over the last couple seasons. So how long does it take for for us to stop believing in that magic? Were were they just lucky in the past and their luck has run out, or they still know how to do it, but but they've been unlucky lately, or or maybe they've been recruiting pitchers in a different way so that the, the injury ability doesn't manifest anymore? Do you do you still buy it? Yeah, that's a big question for them, right? Um, I, I think there's a few things there. One is um, the time when they demonstrably had the fewest injuries, um, they had Mark Burley, which if you're looking at, you know, where they're getting out of the starting staff, Mark Burley, I think is a guy who, if you put him at any point in baseball history, would have been a, you know, a guy who's pitching 220 innings a year for forever. He's just one of those freak guys. So it's not to say they had nothing to do with keeping himself healthy, but that's a hell of a place to start. Past that, yeah, they don't seem to have had quite the same record over the, over the, the last few years. And it's, Really hard to disentangle that from the talent they've had. You know, are they are they past their prime as 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 trainers, or are they, you know, are they having bad luck with a guy like John Banks who you know he just got hurt and you know has never quite been the same or, or quite as durable or effective. The the probably the most important thing, right, is Chris Sale. I mean, Chris Sale is a guy who there seems for a while to be a, a near universal consensus that his arm is going to fly off and hit the umpire in the head one day. And it just hasn't happened. He's missing his, his five or so starts every year. But he seems to be a guy who um, isn't at any greater risk than any other pitcher or any lesser risk, it's, you know, which makes it very worrisome. But he's been out there pitching effectively, making his starts. And, you know, if I had to bet on him, pitching his 27 or 28 games, um, you know, I'd bet that or bet the over. So, you know, if they've been keeping Chris Sale healthy, question of whether they've been able to keep their 
flotsam types healthy is, is a little bit less is a little bit less important than that. But are they still effective? Yeah, I think they're still effective. Are they going to be um, a serious game-changing asset for them going forward? I'm, I'm a little more skeptical of that, just because they've been around forever. And you know, you see it with you see it with coaches and you see it with managers. Um, and I don't know that anybody's ever made a really serious study of it with trainers, but I, I'd suspect you see it with trainers because you see it with everybody in every field of life. Is you know. You you have your you have your period when everything's working great for you and and you know be it other people coming up with techniques that are as effective as yours so that you look relatively less effective or losing interest or aging out of it or whatever you know you hit a point where you're not as good anymore they're gonna hit that at some point and whether they have or not is like a totally open question and lastly I want. To, to ask one Adam Eaton question, because I've been fond of Adam Eaton for a few years. I remember a, a couple of years ago at BP, he was not ranked on the top prospect list. And I am not a prospect expert. And any time that I would have an urge to put someone higher on a prospect list than someone who knows about prospects, it would probably be wrong, you know, nine times out of 10. But I had to resist the temptation to just slip Adam Eaton onto that list some <laughs> somewhere at some point between the list being submitted and being published on the site because he was so close to the majors and seemed like he had such a decent skill set that would translate pretty well. And he's played very well when he's not hurt. You actually dropped a, a Tim Raines comp on him in the essay. So uh, what was it about Eaton that you think led to him perhaps being underrated he was rated on on some other sites prospect list he was on the baseball america list once but toward the bottom never toward the top he he's a funny guy i was Fangraphs ran a kind of retroactive look at minor leaguer war uh a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and he popped up on the there a couple of times um as having having had two of like the top 40 seasons in the last five years. So I don't, I don't know if those are the exact parameters, but it was, it was something like that. And the, the method they were using didn't make park adjustments. And that was kind of when a bell went on over my head is probably no one took him quite as seriously as he deserved to. Um, because the Diamondbacks have some pretty big hitters parks. And I wonder if people weren't, um, discounting his numbers a little bit as a result of that. And when you add in the fact that he's, you know, he's got a funny body type. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of short and stocky, but it kind of draws to mind this comparison Bill James made in the new historical baseball abstract. He was talking about, um, he was talking about either Yogi Berra or Kirby Puckett. And he was, he was saying, how many bad players can you think of who have that build? And it's really true because probably there's such a selection bias that if you, if you have this kind of guy who's like five, seven, five, eight, whatever he is, and, and is stocky, um, you know, it's, it's hard for a guy like that to get a look. It's hard for a guy like that to get a chance. He has to prove himself over and over. I mean, you look back, he's a guy, you know, with a really well-rounded skill set, plays like a maniac and was hitting the crap out of the ball in their system. And, and the Diamondbacks, who you would think would be, you know, plastering his face all over their park and, you know, calling him the grindingest dirt dog they'd ever seen, um, you know, got rid of him for, for no apparent reason. So, I think he's just, you know, he's just an example that as much as, um, 
you know, as much as baseball has changed and, you know, people in positions of power are, you know, people who, who have been reading or, you know, in some cases writing for places like baseball perspectives for a long time. So that you would think a lot of biases have kind of washed out and people are judged more on their, you know, their, their talent and, and, and their performance. There are still guys who just kind of get overlooked because they don't look right. You know, they don't look like they should be able to do what they're doing. And so they have to just keep doing it and doing it and doing it until people believe that they're actually doing it. Um, you know, I, I think he's, he's an awesome player. He's really fun to watch. Um, you know, he's the kind of guy who could go out there and, and just like have a really bad year in, in some core category and still be, you know, valuable. He could go out there and have a terrible year defensively or hit 220 or, you know, hit five home runs or something and still have a really good year just because it's a really well balanced game. It should probably be a little pickier about stealing bases, but, and maybe not running into walls so much, but, you know, what are you going to do? All right, so we subject all of our guests to the indignity of making a prediction. So tell us how many games you envision the White Sox winning this year and whether that will be enough for them to finish somewhere respectable in a a pretty weak-seeming AL Central. You know, if I was going to guess, I'd say 83. Um, I could could definitely see them winning, like, you know, if everything comes together for them... um, like if Radon comes up and he's, you know, a reasonable poor man sale and good stuff like that happens. Everybody stays healthy. Uh, you know, Abreu keeps doing it. Um, I, I mean, I could definitely see them winning the division reasonably handily, but I, I'd guess 83. But I don't see any reason they wouldn't be, you know, 83 is probably enough to keep the last couple of weeks, uh, couple of weeks of the season interesting. So, that's fine. That's where, you know, that feels like where they should be at. Um, if you're, if you're saying, I think they'll, you know, I think they'll still be in it in September and, and have a shot at things. And if everything breaks right, you know, they could, they could do very well, but that's where they should be. They haven't been very good the last couple of years. And, um, you know, if they're shooting to give fans the proverbial hope and faith while, making a making a play for the next couple of years after that to maybe add another big bat or whatever. But that's fine. A, a very good development and you know, I think they they should be they should be pretty pleased with themselves, uh, no matter how the season turns out, because they, they put themselves in pretty good position. Um you know, it's hard to turn things around. If they if they improve by ten games that'll be a big deal and, you know, they'll still just be kind of sitting there a little bit above the middle of the pack, a, a return to their traditional historical position, but there are there are definitely worse things in sports. I um I've been thinking a lot about uh, the Philadelphia 76ers lately and just how they're, they're literally telling um you know basketball fans in, in Philly like you're not going to have anything worth watching for years. Mm-hmm. You know, go find some other team to root for in the meantime. You're not going to be able to come to our you know our arena and just watch a fun basketball game um for a really long time. So. Um, you know, as much as you can kind of poke the, the Sox a little bit for historically being this very average team, there, there's value in average. You, know, you, you have a, a 50 percent chance of seeing a win, and you'll probably see something credible, um, which is a lot of what teams should be offering. It's hard to do that. 
All right, so Tim's essay on the White Sox is in the BP Annual. You can find him on Twitter at Tim Marchman. You can read him at Deadspin. You can read everything at Deadspin because it has his fingerprints on it somewhere. Thanks a lot, Tim. Thanks for having me on. All right, so stay tuned after the musical interlude for Sahadev speaking to Dan Hayes of CSN Chicago. Welcome to the second half of the Effectively Wild Podcast. I'm Sahade Sharma, Associate Editor for Baseball Prospectus. With me is Dan Hayes, who covers the White Sox for CSN Chicago. Uh, we're going to preview the 2015 Chicago White Sox, who are projected for 78 wins, which I feel is low. I'm going to guess Dan does, too. I, I read his work, and, I, and I'm friends with him, so I, I know that he's uh, a little more optimistic than in the past than we have been with this White Sox club. Huh. Uh Let's kick it off with the white uh, with the catching situation, Dan. I I looked at the forty man and uh, there were names that I just uh, I was surprised to see. I guess uh, you know uh, Kevin Smith. I didn't know much about him. Nieto we remember from last year, but then there's Rob Brantley, and then there's two guys in camp who aren't even on the forty man in Soto and Kataras. It's a it's a interesting situation. I'm assuming they're just going to cat carry two catchers and there's a ton of names right there and two of the bigger names aren't even on the 40 man what how do you think this shakes out are they just having a full out competition or all five of these guys really have a chance uh for that backup spot you know I, right now when i look at it i i think that the two veteran guys are probably the ones they're leaning towards they really like adrian nieto possibly as a guy for the future he's last year he came up and he was 24 and he never played above the ball he held his own, you know, he, he treaded water, but at the same time, they didn't feel comfortable enough to play him more than once a week. And I think that, you know, that was something that they were able to do because that team wasn't built to probably compete very much last year. They had so many holes that they knew their limitations and they were willing to sit on him because that guy, you know, he's better than most of the guys that they had in their system. So I could see him being at Double, uh, double A, but more likely triple A and being the everyday guy and getting a lot of it um, at bats and just the chance to play every day and taking what he learned this year. Um, you look at, at Rob Brantley, they like him more than some of the scouts had said. They think he's a little bit better defensively and has improved. And, and so he's definitely in that mix. But I really do think that if Giovanni Soto is healthy, that that's their guy. You look at what they need. They need someone to come in and play probably two days a week behind Tyler Flowers. Um and if Soto, you know, he's been limited to 177 games over the last three seasons. So the the good part for him is he can come in, try and prove that he's healthy and not need to be the everyday guy. And, and it gives him a chance to kind of get back to where he was. I think it was really encouraging what he was able to do in September with Oakland, both offensively. You know, there probably is a little more in the tank than what he showed with the A's there. Uh, but defensively, I think he threw out almost 50% of his base runners or maybe even um, maybe even 9 of 17. But, you know, that, that wild card game against Kansas City drastically changed when he left. But, you know, I think that's a, that's a good, solid option there for them. And George Gutierrez, clearly, he's got some left-handed pop. They're, they're better off to that position than they were a year ago just because I think that they have guys they won't hesitate to use. And I think last year it was kind of 
Tyler Flowers was the main guy, and and they thought the best chance of winning was with him back there. And they probably have some guys who they really would feel comfortable with throwing back there a couple times a week this year. You know, Tyler Flowers. It, I looked back at some of the numbers, and he he had a real nice end to the season. It turns out he's a really good framer. Uh, he takes a lot of heat, but I, I read that he, uh, I think he's wearing contacts or something like that, really helped out uh, his eyes, and and now and that's kind of when the you know when everything clicked for him in the second half. Uh, is do you think it's for real? Do you think this is a guy that can maybe turn out to be much better than we expected coming into the last season? At, he had like a one for fifty streak. I remember we were talking about him <laughs> in the press box at one point. He was just awful at one point last year is is he a lot better than maybe we expected i think one thing that will help a lot is having that backup that veteran guy to give him rest you look at the times when he was good last year i mean he was a really streaky player he was very good in april when he's fresh he was very good in around the all-star break right there when uh, comes back off a couple days of rest and he was very good in september when they had three catchers and, and got to sit a little bit with Josh Begley up there. And I, I do think that he'll be more consistent because he won't be wearing down. I, I think that probably caught up with him a little bit. You know, you look at what he he did last year offensively. It's still not great. It's still not attractive, but it's so much better than the 195 he hit the year before with the 10 home runs. And I think that there's more in the tank. Um, I, he's never going to be a guy that hits probably higher than 240 or 250, but he definitely has 17 to 20 home run power. We saw a little bit of that last year. We saw some of it late, which I think is a positive sign for him because he had a couple of two home run games there in September. And I think, you know, he's in a better spot. Like you said, he is a definitely um, works well with the pitching staff. The, the pitchers love him. And, and like you said, the framing has always been good. So, there was good improvements for him with the arm last year too. Uh, removed a year removed from that shoulder surgery, so you know you can see why they stuck with him. I think that he's probably a little bit above replace. I think he was two wins above replacement last year. That's probably where he is a two to three guy max. But you don't need all stars at every spot. And if you got a guy that the, the coaching staff feels comfortable with, like they do, it, it works out well. Especially because the pitchers, you know, they really do love him. Uh, Hector Noesi kind of, you know, they picked him up off the scrap heap last year and he, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a superstar by any means, but he was a solid fourth, fifth starter and Coop has been raving about him. Uh, what has what Coop specifically said? What What has he worked on with him that uh, makes Coop so po- uh, positive that this guy's going to be a solid back of the rotation arm? Well, I think they made some mechanical adjustments last year and just shortened his, his delivery a little bit and it really helped him keep the ball down and that's the thing you know like you said probably as a fourth or fifth guy max because the stuff is it's solid the fastball is 92 93 but when he keeps it down he works quickly and he's an innings eater and that was that's the one thing i think this staff if they can stay healthy really is going to help out the bullpen a lot because you look at jose quintana and he's had 200 innings each of the last two years you look at I think he had 166 innings last year. He missed all of April as far as being a starter. You know, he was with three teams in in relief and needed to be built up. And he was a big innings-eating horse. John Danks had 193 innings. Chris Sale's been close. I know the injury subtracted some innings off of his year last year. And then you got Jeff Samarja. So if you can get five guys that average 180 190 innings between the the group you're really lessening the load on the bullpen and i think that's the one good thing 
about the the back end is those guys really came through with some big innings for them last year. Given that the fifth spot was so tenuous and and you had Chris Sale go out with injuries, the fact that they didn't really have to dip too deep. Scott Carroll made a lot of starts. Andre Rienzo did. And and they didn't – I think they went about seven guys deep on the starting list even though they had injuries. So, you know, that's that's a strength for them that – going that way and, and the West he really has some confidence out of those changes and I think that the fact that he put them to practice all last year and comes back this year I think one thing that he needs to do a little bit better is keep his misses with his off-speed stuff out of the zone they're talking about better misses and and not leaving him up that's the one thing that dogged him a little bit but for a guy who'd been released twice last season he was a real fine for them uh, you mentioned the bullpen, and I'll get to that in a second, but uh, Carlos Rodon, you know, very highly thought of, a big a high draft pick last year, just another power lefty that they could put in the rotation, but what's it, What's the outlook for 2015? Is is it, you know, start in the minors and eventually come up into the rotation if uh, Danks and Oasey do falter, or could he be a, a factor in the bullpen early on? You know, I, that's that's a really good question. I I think they're gonna play it by ear because if they get what they think out of Noesi and Danks, you know that rotation's it's it's solid at least. But Rodon clearly could be a, a factor in it, and I wonder if they'll do something like they've done with Hector Santiago in the past, where he starts once in a while, pitches in a number of roles in the bullpen. Uh, obviously, they brought Chris Sale up to pitch in the bullpen in 2010. And, and it was because that's what they needed. And there's a chance that's what could happen with Rodon. He's definitely a talent. I mean, you look at him out here and he's he's just – he looks like a pro. I mean, he, he really I, – I, we had heard all these things about him. One scout last year told me a top 10 pitcher on the planet. And you see him out here and he does not look like some of the younger guys. He's just built differently. Jeff Samarja talked about that a little bit, how he just looks like a pro pitcher. And – the stuff is outstanding. I mean, the, the slider is it, – it, it's fun to watch, let's just say that. And so I, I think that in some way he can help them. I think they're still trying to figure out what that is. They don't have to rush it. And, you know, it could be earlier than we expect. It could be a lot like maybe Chris Bryant, what they're saying about the Cubs, where they just try to keep him around so that they get that seventh season out of him, you know, push him back a month and, and bring him in and – and get that seventh year of team control out of him, which, you know, that makes a lot of sense for teams to do, especially when you have a talent like that. Yeah, and he's represented by Boris too, right? Right, and yeah. he's going to get paid no matter what. That's the thing. You know, I mean, if they were to bring him up and he becomes super two eligible, the guy's going to – if he's as good as advertised, he's going to make his money, and I think they know that. That's They committed to him anyways. They're ready to do that. I mean, you don't get a talent like that very often and they felt very fortunate that he fell down at third uh you know i mentioned the bullpen i mentioned it in the earlier podcast too i, I saw that i watched this bullpen we watched this bullpen it was just terrible last year <laughs> we'd, we'd be watching games that seemed like they were cruising along and then the bullpen would come in and give up you know seven eight runs in just two three innings and it would just drag on forever it was it was a demoralizing bullpen at times and I, I feel like that's partly it's not just Samarja and Quintana that Pakota's missing on, but I think uh, even advanced stats that there's nothing that can really gauge a bullpen that was that bad that cost them that many games and just kept them out of any game. Uh, quite often, it just like it made any close game 
you know, ins- an insurmountable lead. So how key is just fixing that bullpen, like just getting guys that you can count on in the late innings, a guy like Robertson and even Duke, maybe Dan Jennings and some of the younger guys uh, developing? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think when the one thing I learned from watching or covering the Padres for the first part of my career is that ninth inning when that's locked down, you know, it was Trevor Hoffman there for the first couple of years and then it was Heath Bell for a couple of years. And that really does so much for the psyche, the collective psyche of a bullpen. And there was an 11 game road trip in June where they went to Minneapolis and they went to Baltimore back to back. And I want to say between Ronald Belisario and Javi Guerra and a few guys, I think they blew four of the first five games and that team was done right then and there. It was, it was over. You could just see it. And so you get Robertson in here and that takes care of the ninth inning. And he's a guy that profiles so well for the ballpark um, strikeout guy, but also high ground ball guy. And, and that at us cellular field is, is critical. And I think that, you put him in there, and then you let those younger kids. You, you know, Zach Putnam. I can see why Dakota doesn't like the White Sox bullpen. They just don't have long track records. I mean, Jacob Petrichka two years ago had like a five-plus ERA in the minors, but he came in last year and was thrown in that eighth and ninth inning, and he finishes with a three ERA and, and saves I think 14 of 18 games for a kid who was really going through his first full season. I think. That's a good sign to, to be able to do that. I mean, he faltered a little at times, and, but he was one of the guys that they really relied on heavily. And the same for Zach Putnam, for a minor league free agent who had not been able to stay healthy the full time, came in last year and was just lights out. So you back those guys up, and you look at Zach Duke, and I'm sure that Dakota looks at his past as a starter. Well, in his one year with that, throwing in that lowered side, uh, the lowered angle on his arm, I mean, the ERA dipped to like 274, and I, I think that he's a guy that's not just a, a lefty specialist. He can pitch both sides because of his experience as a starter. So you throw those three in there, and it really it it should be a better situation just because, again, they aren't being asked to be the saviors of the team. They're just asked to do their roles, and last year was such a different scenario with – First, Matt Lindstrom being the closer unexpectedly after Nate Jones got hurt. And then Ronald Belisario being the closer unexpectedly after Lindstrom got hurt. And after Belisario failed, they went to Putnam and, and Petrichka. I think that experience helps them a lot and will get them to help uh, have better track records in the future. You know, the, the second base situation is obviously undecided still. Uh, but I also think there may be, maybe not immediately, but there could be some indecision at third base at some point i like gillespie i think he's you know he's a solid he's got a solid bat he's not the prototypical third base but he produced nicely last year but how do you see second and third base shaking out uh maybe opening day and then by you know mid-season yeah third base i mean i think that's gillespie's i don't know that there's anybody that challenges him for the job right now matt davidson needs to bounce back from last year at triple a he had I think he hit 201, hit about 20 home runs. and So the power was still there, and that's a good sign. But he never really – it's not like he's going to be a big hitter. He'll probably be a maximum 250, 260 hitter. But for him to be at 201 at AAA after producing pretty well there the year before, it was, it was a little – it was a big step back, I think. But they're still confident he can be that guy. And, and maybe they would consider platooning early on with him. But for right now, Gillespie, you know, I – he hit 282, had 57 RBIs. He's solid enough where they, they feel good about that. And, and you're not asking him to do what you did last year. He really bounced around the lineup last year. 
They even had him hitting fourth after they traded Adam Dunn just because he was the only left-handed hitter that could really that was consistent and they needed somebody to protect Jose Abreu and otherwise it would have been rookies. So I think that took him out of his game a little bit. So now with, with Adam LaRoche in the lineup and with Melky Cabrera, Gillespie falls maybe down to the sixth spot in the lineup. And that's a not a bad spot for a line drive guy, a short compact swing that's really easy to maintain. That's one thing Robin Ventura has talked about in the past is how easy that swing is for him to keep. And they really like that, you know, defensively, he still needs to grow. He made some steps last year, but he still has more room to grow. And that could be the one thing that hurts him in his career. But for what they have, he's he's really solid there for right now. Um, second base, definitely, they have to sort that out. You know, you do have two rookies that they're pretty high on. They're about as different as can be because Micah Johnson is a more offensive upside guy. He's really fast. The glove, people are sort of divided on, and and you wonder how that's going to play out. And then Carlos Sanchez isn't going to hit as much as Micah Johnson, but his glove's better, and he, he has a little bit of speed too. So they would love for one of those two guys to win the job. Whether or not they do, we'll see. But the good part for them is that they have Emilio Bonifacio and Gordon Beckham as insurance options if that doesn't happen. Although I do think the White Sox bench is much better off if they were able to use Beckham and Bonifacio all around the field rather than starting them at second base every day. Uh, as far as LaRoche and Abreu go, uh, it looks like uh, Rick Hahn suggested that Abreu is going to get majority of the time at first base. Is that – do you see – it? Is that how it's actually going to play out? I mean, LaRoche may be the better glove, but is it a situation where they kind of want Abreu to grow at that position because that's his long-term spot? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's 27, and I think he's he's got like five games out of every seven, and LaRoche will get two, some kind of split like that. And you're right, probably at this point, LaRoche is hands, hands down the better defender there. But I think we saw some good signs out of Abreu defensively last year. I remember we, we talked about it in September, how good he was going, and he had a, a rough game, and, and Robin Ventura called us out on it for jinxing him. But he, he really made some strides there. I remember early on he was having trouble receiving, and they fixed that really, really quickly. You didn't expect the hands to be as soft as they are. It's not pretty how he gets the balls, but he does get it done effectively, and I think that they want to see him continue that because it's just too early to make him a, a DH. Now, if, if health ever was to come into play or if it's just not getting done, I don't think they'd have any problem switching it up, you know, for the sake of the team. But I think they do want to continue his development there for sure. And, I mean, there's no doubt in your mind that last year wasn't just a one-year wonder. This wasn't a guy that needs that, that the league's going to adjust to. I remember I gave him a couple months. I didn't want like, – I wanted to jump on the bandwagon right after a couple weeks, I think. But I remembered Kosuke Fukudome, and I so I tried to temper expectations even though in the back of my head I, I felt like he's a superstar. But I think, I think most people are on board that this guy is legit. Yeah, I think I probably pissed off some fantasy people last year because I, I – I really lowballed it on him. I was saying, hey, you know, if he hits 270 with like 20 to 25 homers, you know, that's something that we should look as his height. And of course, I think he had 20 homers by like July 5th, and I was just sitting there laughing. I was, I'm hoping nobody finds that interview anywhere because <laughs> I will be crushed by that one. But uh, you know, I mean, think about the fact that last year, 
Adam Eaton got on base about 36% of the time. And then whoever was hitting in that second spot, they were terrible there. They, they eliminated him all the time. I mean, Alexi Ramirez was hitting the double plays all the time. And that's one of the good things also, you know, Connor Gillespie moves down. Well, Alexi Ramirez might hit seventh in this lineup. And that's a spot where he can just worry about hitting home runs, driving in runs, you know, steal the occasional base. And, and in that second spot, not erasing Adam Eaton. And you get two guys on in front of Abreu, Melky Cabrera and, and Adam Eaton. And you're looking probably at even more RBI opportunities and you've got Adam LaRoche protecting him. And I, you know, I mean, I, I could see him having better numbers. He slowed down last year. You have to consider the fact that the guy, the guy had never played more than 90 games at any point in his career before last season. So every kind of soreness that was possible to experience he was experiencing it from the all-star break on. And I, you know, I heard his wrists and his hands were sore probably the last two months and he powered through it. The guy was a champ. I mean, it's funny. He did not have the the pop as much down the stretch, but he became a better hitter. He became more selective and he started hitting balls to right and becoming that overall hitter that we, we thought we'd see from the start. So I think what he did last year, probably exceeded what everybody thought he could do. And I still think there's more in the tank there just because he's going to be used to it now. He's going to have 162 game season under his belt and knows how to kind of pace himself as well as prepare for it. Uh, Chris sale, you know, there's, there's not much we can say about him as far. He's just a, you know, a stud Cy Young candidate, one of the best arms in the game. Uh, does he have a new post game stick for us? That's what I want to know. Yeah. I, I, it's going to be hard to top last year. That word of the day thing, uh, they used every start. One, you know, not every word was used properly. There were a few times where it was it was a little bit of a stretch, but it's going to be hard to top that because that was something that I remember going through September and, and going, this is the boring time of year. This team's out of it, so we're doing features. And waiting for his word of the day was fantastic. I remember we were in Boston maybe in July, and the other writers heard about it and they just, they were cracking up and they loved his usage of whatever word it was. And it's something that it was probably to go along. I mean, it just made a fantastic season a little bit more enjoyable for us. And I'm, I think the fans kind of liked it too. So um, I don't know how he can top that, you know, I mean, unless he has somebody doing some crazy stuff in the background of every one of his interviews, like, you know, juggling or something like that. I, I don't know what he could possibly do to top it. Uh, all right. Uh, this is how I'm letting everyone go. I just want to know, uh, it's not the most important thing. It's not the key to the season, but what storyline event, whatever it may be, what are you looking forward to covering as a reporter for the 2015 White Sox? Man, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think Rodon will be a lot of fun to see if, if they bring him up, but Maybe, maybe mostly it's going to be what, what Avisael Garcia turns into or doesn't. And that, that actually turns out to be something really important, clearly, because I think they're looking at him batting fifth. But there's so much potential there, and we haven't seen it over a full season. And obviously, he kind of got robbed of that last year by missing four and a half months with the torn labrum. But he could be a, a monster and hit. 30 homers. I don't know that his track record's ever shown anything like that, obviously, but he's so big and powerful. But at the same time, he's quick. And I, I want to see what he's able to do with 500 plate appearances. He only has 500 plate appearances over the course of his 
professional or his uh, major league career so far. And he, you know, it's just there's the the potential is there is interesting to me. It's one of the few areas where there isn't a track record to back things up. And he's coming to camp lighter. He's he's on this crazy diet where he's not eating meat or chicken, something I could never ever do. <laughs> but but um, it, you know, it's clear that. He showed some signs in September they really liked, and then he was trying to take more pitches, and he and Todd Steverson had this little competition going on, and every time he'd take a walk, and I think he walked like eight times in September and maybe struck out 11 or 13, but every time he'd get to first base, he'd look over to the dugout specifically for Steverson and kind of give himself a pat on the back. So it's just going to be fun to see how he develops. We've heard so much about him. I don't think that he's the dynamic player that people have said. But at the same time, I think he could be a very good player, and we'll find out this year. Dan, uh, I'm hearing the birds in the background, so I'm getting jealous. So I'm going to have to let you go. Uh, why don't you let the folks know where they can find you on Twitter and where they can read your work? Yeah, uh, you can read me at C- uh, csnchicago.com, um, the White Sox page there, and also on Twitter at csnhays. All right, that's Dan Hayes, who covers the White Sox for CSN Chicago, a must-read for Chicago White Sox fans. I'm Sahadev Sharma. You can follow me on Twitter at Sahadev Sharma and read my work at Baseball Prospectus. Dan, thanks for taking the time to join us. Take care. All right, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. All right, that's the end of the White Sox episode. Thanks for listening. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. You can send us emails for this week's upcoming listener email show at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. If you missed last Friday's show, you can go back and check that out. Sam and I made an announcement about a book that we are co-writing at the beginning of that show. And you can support our sponsor, the Baseball Reference Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com, subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back with another Team Preview podcast tomorrow.